Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of connecting with Dr. Shivani Sharma. And at the time of recording, Shivani is an associate professor and also an executive lead for equality, diversity and inclusion and has a passion for research relating to health equity. She is a mum and she is also a dancer and she is absolutely awesome. So during this interview, Shivani walks us through three key areas to consider when thinking about co-production, widening access and closing that gap on health inequalities and health equity. Shivani is also really passionate about making sure that she is extending the ladder for other people from diverse backgrounds to help them achieve their professional goals. I hope that you enjoy it. She's so inspiring. And I love doing this podcast. So thank you for stopping by. Hey, Shivani, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am good. It's a, it's a Friday, sun is shining, all good. Although I did put the heating on today. <laughs> sun is shining, it's pouring down where I am. Whereabouts are you in the world? I live in Wiltshire in a little village just on the outskirts. If I share with our audience how we got connected, now usually I don't accept public relations people submitting people to come on the podcast because usually the blurb that they provide doesn't inspire me. But a lady called Gina who works with you nominated you to come on the podcast and I was like, I need to speak to this person. What she wrote really struck me. It was really well written. It was really friendly. And then I met you and I was like, oh my God, you have to come on. So can you share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you're passionate about? I'm glad to hear that that's how my bio came across to you because I like to be very authentic and raw in the way that I am and the way that I interact with people. So I am a psychologist by background. I like to say that for the university where I currently work, I'm a massive PR pitch, a salesperson for them and what they stand for and achieve. So I was a widening access entrant into university, and I know that language can be a little bit clunky in and of itself. So that basically means from a certain type of household income, first generation, minority ethnic woman. And I studied really hard because I always had it in my head that I must get a first and get out of university and be in a position where my mortgage pays itself really well. 
And I was just very lucky early on in my career, partly obviously owning your own space because of the way I am and the way I conduct myself too. But I came in touch with a few people who were really pivotal in the early part of my career, who I would say looked at opportunities and reasons to scope me in rather than scope me out. And that just set me on a kind of trajectory of leadership positions in higher education. So I work at a university, the university where I also studied, University of Hertfordshire, lots of different management positions. But I have taken on the mad task of sustaining research alongside that. So I am an academic. I am a researcher. I'm a dancer in my spare time, a mum, unashamedly doing the best I can in all of these different spheres of my life. And the reason that I think we've been put in touch really is because my research and practice as a higher education leader is all around disrupting the status quo and progressing health equity in the healthcare system, particularly for patients living with long term conditions like kidney disease. And then in my leadership, I'm constantly trying to look based on my sort of lived experience of navigating higher education, ways to make sure that we support and encourage diversity at all levels. So did you get your first? I did get my first. I did actually blow my own trumpet. I topped my whole year group. So I was very happy with that. As my husband will often say to me, you are a nerd through and through. And that is me. Well, congratulations. And you mentioned it was important for you to own your own, like own your space. What do you mean by that? Why And why is it important? So my PhD supervisor, I think I was just fortunate to have someone at the right stage of their career who was a disruptor and always just things don't happen by luck. You've crafted them, you've manoeuvred them. And I always used to feel in my early stages of my career and also the system I found myself in was telling me you must have had a favour, etc. But I think I have to own that I was different. And now that I manage other academics day in and out, I realised what was different about me and that sometimes years of experience doesn't mean good years of experience and you can do and will do and investing in potential. So I mean owning that I did have that potential at that stage and still have potential to do more in my career journey. So I'm proud and want to accept that. So again, in terms of owning, it's only recently, I'd say, that I've been confident enough to admit that when I was offered a PhD studentship, I was kind of like, what's a PhD? And people just looked at me like, you've been taught by lecturers who are doctors or professors for the last three years of your life. What did you think? How did they get there? And I said, to be honest, I didn't care. I came in, I had my head down. I was very focused on, I don't want the kind of life that my parents have struggled through. I want to have a really good, well-paid job. So I didn't really think about where they got their professorships or doctorates from. So the whole language of higher education was different to me. And nobody in my family has done a PhD or a like. So just owning where you've come from and how you've got to where you are currently, I think is really important. You've just reminded me, and I'm going to sound like such a hypocrite, because when I tell my story, I actually completely forgotten that... I participated in a program called Aim Higher and Aim Higher was about widening participation. So I went on the program and then I became an Aim Higher ambassador and that set actually set me on my journey into going. So I went to kind of 
college. And then I did have people tap me on the shoulder. I did a HND and they said, oh, would you like to turn that into a degree? And I was like, oh, what's a degree? And then they kind of talked me through it and I did it. When I, I worked at university and then I was doing a project and one of my lecturers said to me, have you thought about doing an MBA? And I was a bit like, what's an MBA? So yeah, I completely, I've just, I completely forgot and it's so important, the people that help you on the way. Yeah, but it's like you say, it's really important to remember that because, you know, as you go further in your career, all these little, little things that make the biggest difference, you forget. But I think it's important, certainly in the spheres that I'm in, to make sure that I'm making students aware. Because I've also had situations where one of my previous deans of school was kind of saying, The students we sometimes encounter haven't had the same private school upbringing that you and I have. And I kind of have to turn around and say, I definitely did not go to a private school. I'm very flattered that you think that. But well, I think I should be flattered that you think that. But that's not me. So I think people can also have a certain perception of you or impose that perception because they've seen your career trajectory or think you couldn't have possibly got to that role without having had some privilege along the way. But it's really important to remember those things. So where did your passion for health equity come in? Quite by accident, actually. Again, it's about rolling with the opportunities. So I had this vision that I'm going to work as a behavioural someone or other for for a group like the MI5 or alike. Again, (laughs) thinking because I'd grown up with Bollywood, Hollywood in front of me. So I was really set in what I'm going to do in my career. And I was offered this PhD. I chose an area that was important to me. I was looking at supporting mothers of autistic children. But I thought I should get some wider experience. And so somebody who was lecturing at the department where I was studying said, oh, you know, go and speak to the kidney team up in Hertfordshire. And when I was sitting in the waiting room, a patient waited for everybody to leave and then asked me in Punjabi, do you speak Punjabi? And I said, oh, yes, I do, etc. And we had this really nice conversation. And a good friend of mine, Joe Chilcott, was doing his PhD on mental health and kidney disease at the time. So when I went to speak to the professor for some voluntary experience that was supervising Joe, I said, oh, what do you do in Joe's kind of research when you encounter people who don't speak English? And he said, we exclude them. But if you'd like to help me solve this problem, then how about we work together? And that's just spiraled my own understanding, awareness of health inequity and just shaped my career and what's followed since in terms of the impact that I'm trying to have and changes that we're trying to bring about for patients from all different kinds of communities. When your colleague said, are we exclude them? Did, when he said it, how how did he say it? Was it very blasé? Did he feel like we exclude them, but I don't really want to? Like, when he presented that, how was his demeanour? That particular professor is so kind and so warm as a person and really, really cares. I mean, I know the administrative staff, having interviewed lots of patients from that unit, they probably think he's a nightmare. He should spend 10, 15 minutes and he's spending an hour with each patient kind of thing. It was more of a, oh, well, we don't really have a strategy of how to address this. Maybe you'd like to help me think about that. And and it was very rapid from there in. And 12 years later, we're still pushing And he also was really key in helping me stick with that area because nowadays we're all talking about inequality in some way, shape or form. But at that time, I found it really difficult to have these conversations and to get people to provide funding to help us do good work. But he always said to me, someone will care about what you have to say at some point. 
And the kidney health community has been really good in terms of responsiveness, but he was right. I didn't think it would be a worldwide pandemic that would make so many people flood forward to say, can we use your expertise on patient inclusion, widening access to research, etc.? But yeah, I've had the best encouragement and support to just stay true. And my PhD supervisor also always said this, do what is right to do and not because that's what's in vogue at the time. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage. It is really, really simple. All you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for Good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry. You could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call. Now, let's jump back into this week's episode. So can you, I mean, I know it's huge, walk us through your approach to widening access and widening and just trying to close that gap if you've got a really diverse community and your workforce doesn't always represent the community that it serves. So how, what sorts of things can we start to think about to try to close that gap? So I think there's multiple different ways and levels at which we need to try and address this because any one domain of that is not going to solve something that's quite a complex issue. So firstly, I think at the level of training and education for healthcare professionals, we often use the words cultural sensitivity, cultural intelligence or alike, but actually being in higher education, the way that that's operationalised the way that we teach these skills or help the next generation of workforce in different areas, whether it's medicine or allied health professions, psychologists. I don't think it's as good as it could be in terms of equipping people to have what I would say is some form of health inequity intelligence or health equity intelligence, where they come to their work scenario, really being able to take on different perspectives and truly work with different communities at the way and level that feels meaningful to them. So in my own area, psychology as a discipline, we're still quite, this is a Western Eurocentric model of mental health. And let's impose that onto people who don't necessarily think about mental health in the same way, don't want to label it in the same way, don't want to seek help in the same way. So I think at the education level, we can do our best because there are still lots of people who think, Well, the issue around race inequality is really a social class issue. It's more about the social gradient in health as opposed to ethnicity or race in and of itself being an issue. So they don't really want to enter that zone of having that conversation. But education is not the full picture, but it is at least a starting point to open up people's minds and hopefully eventually influence their practice. Then I think researchers need to accept that research is a powerful way to getting change in healthcare systems for policymakers and everybody. So if we have blind spots in that research, 
we only know what we know and we might not think through the consequences of certain decisions that we make in the research process. Now, how do we get around that? I think it all has to be about co-production. When you're designing your research, make sure the voices of the communities that you're trying to address an issue for are fully embedded. And then I think don't believe that one voice is as good as the other, because certainly what often happens is you might have an expert patient from a minoritized community of any description. It doesn't have to only be ethnically minoritized, but they might have had a specific way through their health journey that has got them to advocacy. Because if you think about it, you already have a certain level of English language skill, confidence, negotiation, all those things that matter. That's probably not the kind of patient who's not engaging with your research. So I think widening the net of people who are feeling like they can engage with and help researchers design the way that they're conducting their research to solve the issue that will help. That's hard because sometimes I think... I can relate, I mean my daughter's got lymphatic syndrome, Tali's got uh, type 1 diabetes and it's only now I, I mean mainly for the diabetes stuff, starting to get involved and when Diabetes UK say you know can you take part in this survey and things like that. I mean Tali's been diagnosed for six years, I'm only now getting involved in it but it's, it doesn't, sometimes I feel like it's not for me, do you really care, what do you do with it, it feels really time consuming I don't I don't quite get what you want you know like it has to be it's one thing to say well, you need to go you need to, we need to co-produce but for people like me mums busy mums I think something needs to be done to help soften it and make it enticing that was going to be my third point which is to achieve that we need to make sure that we demystify what research is because I recently completed a project with Anthony Nolan in the area of minority ethnic people living with blood cancer and a few of the people that we interviewed were like I thought you'd be inundated that's why I didn't come forward so what I've really advocated for is having end-to-end tailoring of the research so make sure we all relate to people and we know this from evidence that look feel more like us And if you're already feeling marginalised in some sort of system, you're going to be more likely to respond to someone who you feel that it's safe to approach, share your concerns with. So cultural tailoring for me in terms of language has been important in the kind of research I'm doing. So I've always worked with members of the community who we have trained to have good conversations with patients, address their issues, and then to help them through the research. And make sure that that same person is an advocate of letting them know what's happened or what is changing as a result of this. Same way with all of my teams, I'm saying, well, just going out into conferences, journals is not enough to make science accessible. So we do things like video animations or comic strips or going on radios in other languages. So I have a joke with a professor, I'm not going to name him, that I work with. And I say, why don't you ever speak Punjabi on TV when you're doing these interviews and things? And he said, oh, because actually I don't know how to. Whereas I do a lot of language adaptation for things that we do and keep it simple. So I'll share a really funny anecdote. I'm sure my friends won't mind me sharing it. But we have a study on kidney health and mental health within that. And I was told to translate a video that my friend had made into Hindi so that we could launch the study with multiple versions. And his version was so scientific, I was really struggling, like, how am I going to explain this in Hindi? So I really stripped it back and I put English subtitles on it. 
But the funder loved it so much that they launched my colleague's study with my video instead of his sciencey one. But I think that's again because it was really thinking about, you know, if we say clinical care pathways or systematic review, your average person is not going to remember that. And like you say, you're bringing your mum experience into the questions you're asking me. I also have elderly parents at home who do speak English and etc. But when their care system sends them a questionnaire through the post, they're like, oh, Shivani, can you complete this for me? And I said, well, mum, I don't know what you want to respond. Oh, you just put what you think they want me to say. So because I have that lived experience from that cultural community as well, I think it just strengthens the ability to think in multiple different ways. And of course, listening to patients. So, yeah, I think those three different things, like working on the workforce and researchers or applied health professionals and what they understand about health inequality is really important, but making sure that's really embedded in the education. And then the research community, I think that duty of how you co-produce, who you co-produce with, but definitely making sure that that end-to-end support is there to get people trusting the research process and knowing, as you rightly said, why does it make a difference to me? Who funds your research? A range of funders, really. So I've been quite fortunate to have patient charities. So I mentioned Anthony Nolan, the Kidney Research UK, also the NIHR, so National Institute of Health Research, lots of funding from different streams, and sometimes internal university projects as well. Do you ever find it hard to engage with healthcare professionals to pursue your research, or is it always, is it just never because of the relationships that you've got, when a bid opportunity comes out, you know who to contact and you say, would anybody be interested? And it just, it's quite easy in that way, getting your clinical lead to support you. This doesn't sound really ironic because when most people meet me in real life, they would probably use words like extroverted, lively, bubbly, but networking has been something that I've always not thought that I was particularly strong at. Having had all those things said about me, if I walked into a room with lots of people, I'd kind of try and find the person that I already know. And a lot of people will find that funny if they heard that about me. The way I initially begun was obviously with kidney health inequality. So I was entering a network that was relatively well formed already. So I could be signposted to places, but I'm never scared of just dropping someone an email. What's the worst that can happen? They're not going to respond. So in terms of kidney health inequalities, I've been really lucky to either have natural links in or whenever I contact someone. I can only describe it as a really friendly, helpful research community of clinicians and academics working together. And then as my work's broadened out, I've been lucky that I've done some work on race equality in medicine with a particular organisation that's always, again, really, really helpful if I need to have a contact or a way into a clinician in a particular area. So in the main, I've never been short of someone who's enthusiastic to address a particular issue. They might not always have the time in their workload, but I think generally people in health tend to have that passion and drive to do what's right and needed rather than what's workloaded in your time. Now this is going to be, people always say there's no stupid questions. <laughs> I can test that right now. Does your research always make a difference? Or is it, and I say that because I used to work in a university and some researchers would, you know, they're like, it's interesting to them but it doesn't have an impact to the wider community. It's funny you ask this question because I was just speaking to a student whose PhD I'm supervising yesterday and I said to her, I know this is a really important topic for you and intellectually you're finding it really interesting, but until you put it out there in the world, nothing is going to change, so let's not keep it as an intellectual endeavour. 
I think some things absolutely rightly need to be at a theoretical model, at that sort of level of informing people how things work, why they work like that, etc. But I was always drawn to the applied side of psychology because I really want to make a difference. My sense of purpose and fulfillment is from doing something that made a difference. So I've always wanted to do an applied area, but not all psychology is like that or other disciplines. There is definitely a place for the theory part to enable people like me to do the applied part. So it's really translating it, isn't it? So if the translation doesn't happen, then the impact in practice won't. But let's not kid ourselves that impact also takes time and determination and perseverance to have in the world as well. And I'm now more on that side of I've done the making the case for it. But now I need to really disrupt and re-engineer the way we're doing things in the area that I want to make a difference in. And what does that disruption look like? So my vision would be that regardless of what kind of community background or life experience you come from, if you land in a kidney care centre in England, you are going to get a fully culturally tailored psychological care pathway for you. What that looks like for different communities, we've got to figure out. But you shouldn't be excluded from being screened for mental health issues or access to interventions that are not right for you just because you have certain demographics. That is a big life achievement type ambition, but I think I'm still at the earliest stages of my career to be able to have enough time ahead of me to see that through and obviously support of an amazing community of research and clinicians around. So when you look at your portfolio today, in order to achieve your vision, is there anything that you may have to stop doing or does it all feed, they all feed each other? So my PhD supervisor early on in my career said, your problem is that you can be any shape. And if you're just one shape, the world will always know what to do with you much better. So just choose, are you going to be square or are you going to be round? And his advice to me was, he probably will not admit it if he's listening to the podcast later, but he said, I think you should just pursue management because you'll climb the ladder much faster. But I was always determined to, at least me, my understanding of academics is that they would have that research profile and impact in the kind of discipline area of their themselves too. So I've never wanted to constrain myself and somehow... I think we never always quite know what our own boundaries are. And the last Mm. COVID pandemic onwards time and just what's been going on in my career has taught me that never think you truly know what you're capable of because you'll always find a way to readjust and readapt. So in short, no, I'm not going to have to stop doing anything. And I'm greedy and you have to be greedy. (laughs) I do want the world and to do everything that I get fulfillment for. So why is it important in this phase of your career to put yourself out there a little bit more and come on the podcast? My whole life I've focused on, I need to study, I need to study, I need to get a good job, I need to get a good job. So whereas we've all moved in academia and in different spheres to talking about race equity, decolonising curriculums, etc., until a certain stage of my career all these concepts because I've been trying so hard to just survive were just brought to life by all of that and it's only now when I've had to stop recheck think about the structure of you know who's at senior executive levels in different professions etc that I've really started to take ownership that I am now part of the next generation of leaders in a particular field and recently I was examining a black male someone who was actually older than me, his PhD. And at the end of it, he said, oh, I'm so happy to see you and have had you examining me. It gives me confidence for my children. 
didn't actually ever think about that, but it sounds like such a cliche, but people often can't be what you can't see. People say that a lot, but that for me was a real moment that just made me actually think about that, that it is my responsibility to be out there, to be sharing my experience, to be raw with it and demystify it and be honest in that process. Because I think sometimes when people climb further up, not always, and this is just a generalisation, that we can lose sight of what it took there. So if I can borrow a line, you're still Jenny from the block. You came from somewhere. (laughs) Own it and let other people know that, yes, it wasn't always easy or this is what happened or walking to work looking amazingly glamorous because I've got my makeup on and everything. But I was up really late trying to do research as well as balance kids and things. That is sometimes a reality. It doesn't look pretty. So I do feel like just sharing whatever I've learned along the way, if that can help others. But I do feel a personal responsibility that if I'm advocating for equality, diversity at senior levels, and I owe it to myself not to be my own stuckness and to not constrain where I think I can get to. So I think in the last few years, I was recently shortlisted as a finalist of a particular award, which I'd always seen since my late teens, etc. And one of my friends actually was nominated in the very early iterations of the Asian Women of Achievements. But that moment of like, wow, someone actually put me forward for this. And I've done something that matters. And if I can get there, and this is the kind of thing I would never have thought of or dreamed of, then how can I help other people realise that you can do it? And you might not always have a helping hand all along the way. I do say to my nieces and nephews, gosh, you're really lucky that someone's sitting there writing your UCAS application with you or you're ringing them up. I'm like, oh, dad, can you help me with this part of medicine or this? I didn't have any of that. And also the rest of my family thought I was crazy doing psychology. They probably still think that that is a wasted career, if I'm honest. But I really want to show others that whether you've got someone helping you or you don't, there will be a way through it for you. But it's not always as easy as some people are making it out. I do agree with what you're saying. But I think in my instance of thinking, oh, God, I was the name hire kid. It's not that I'm making it out that it was easy and I just worked hard. I'm sure my teachers and university students will think, oh, no, Tara, I helped you with that. I did that. Sometimes you generally forget it's not consciously you're presenting this glossy finished article. It all just becomes a blur. And there's certain moments in time or certain people that really stick out for you. But it's not intentional to skip over the bumps. Yeah. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that it may not be intentional, but I'm trying to be intentional to remember it. Because helpful advice I can give is only to give the detail, really. Otherwise, if I just said, you know, I went from being a lecturer to being an associate head of department within two years. By 26, I was an associate dean. One, it's like, whoa, how did that happen? And two, it's like, that's never going to happen for me, is it? So I try to remember as much of it I can. And I think podcasts like this, etc., is going to be a reminder to myself as well. When I look back in five years, this is what was going on at that time. And I just have a really impeccable memory, always have. Being culturally rooted, it is a form that keeps you quite humble and sees learning and development, etc., as a privilege, not a right. I don't know if it's true or it's right to say, but I would imagine that there's very few people that are entirely self-made. Someone might just give you one passing little comment and that just changed your approach. And that has happened to me recently. I can't say much more about that, but it's going to change what my 2024 looks like. And that's so exciting. But that person will never know that that small thing they said to me made a big difference. Well, I think it's a lovely place to end the podcast. If people want to connect with you, where is the best place to find you? 
I'm pretty active on Twitter, LinkedIn. Always reach out and drop a line. Okay, I'll leave your details in the show notes. Thank you so much. Pleasure. It's been really fun talking to you. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and i will see you in the next episode.